I remember getting my education on credit from a colleague of mine at Canada Trust. And he got me like this huge limit, like $10,000 limit credit card, which I never should have had. And he's like, let's pull your credit report. And I was like, what is a credit report? And he's like, yeah, how come you have so many late payments? And I'm like, well, I paid eventually. He's like, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. Like you, if you pay it one day late, that's like a 30 day hit. And I'm like, really? I didn't know that. No, whatever. It was such an eye opener. I was like, I, I don't, I don't even know what this credit report is. How does this work? But I want more credit because that allows you to buy things, but you don't have money. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's funny because I really didn't get any kind of education. And I even took like, when I was at the financial planning firm, I went through a lot of CFP courses. Now I'm sure it's different now. It, and I actually have to tell you, I do talk to even like, let's say somebody at the head of marketing in a bank, they probably don't know how to check their credit. We just don't get these lessons. And it's something that's so incredibly important. This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is the Personal Finance Show. Kelly Keene wants you to feel good about your money. To feel good about your money, you have to educate yourself, ideally as early as possible. Like before you sign up for a credit card, read a ton about credit cards and how they work. Before you buy a house or a condo, listen to podcasts about the pros and cons of buying real estate. There's so many personal finance resources out there today and people like Kelly who are dedicated to educating people about money. Kelly's written nine books and has a 10th one on the way called Talk Money to Me, which will be published in December 2019. When Kelly was younger, she didn't have the personal finance resources that we have today. She had to learn about money through trial and error, which we talk about in the episode. Today, Kelly spends a lot of her time trying to change people's thinking about money so that they don't fall into the same traps that she did. Kelly joined me from Edmonton, Alberta to share her personal finance story. Earliest money memory. Hmm. I can't think of any when I was really young. No, that's maybe not true. I had a, a very early affinity towards money. I always loved it, maybe because we didn't have it growing up. I remember looking down for money with my brother shopping. And if we found $5 or $10, of course, my mom would make sure that we didn't see where that money came from, or we'd have to promptly return it. But if there was no one around. It was a very exciting time to snap that up. I do remember a few of those, but my most special money memory when I was growing up, and, and I can't remember how young I was, I had a single mom raising three kids. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty tough. My dad left when I was eight. She didn't have any formal education and worked with my dad. So when she was on her own, she had to get a waitressing job to support us. So money was really tough. I did, though, have a number of very wealthy uncles. And one uncle in particular was very generous. I didn't get to see him a lot. But when I did get to see him, he would always pull out a $50 bill. Wow. A $50 bill? $50. You know, he didn't see us on birthdays and holidays and things of that sort. So I think that was his way to just kind of be like, hey, this is your birthday holiday money or whatever. But it was a lot of money to me. 
And uh, one thing, because I didn't get a lot of time with my mom because she worked and she used to iron all of our clothes all the time. So I'd sit with her on the stairs and I'd watch her ironing clothes and she used spray starch very specifically to make sure our clothes were starch. And so when he would bring me that $50 bill, if it was like crumpled in any way, I would like sneak downstairs and I would plug in the iron and I would spray starch my money. <laughs> I would iron it. So it was nice and fresh. Now you might think I'm telling you this because I was good with money and I put those bills away and I didn't spend them. Oh, no, 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 no. I spent them right away. But I did want them to be crisp and starched. <laughs> like my mom, <laughs> clothes. you know how when you get that money, like I was just in LA and I got some US cash. And it was fresh and it was just, hmm, I don't know. There's something straight from the bank. Yeah. Oh, like it, totally. Right. And you're just like, oh my gosh, it feels so good. So because I, I was thinking like you're going to put them in a photo album or something. That's why you're right. doing that. But you just <laughs> like, you're like the feeling of it. Did you say you're around eight or no? The When would this happen? I would say maybe even a little bit earlier, maybe like five or six. I remember doing that. I remember sneaking down and, and, and ironing. So yeah, I've always, always loved money. Always loved fresh bills even today. And today, I, I have to tell you, when I come back from a trip, I never cash my money back in. I still walk around with like euros and, and pounds <laughs> and, and American money. I, I don't use it, but I, I just, you know, I just love having cash. It makes me feel secure. Well, so what are you doing with a $50 bill when you're that young, though? Oh, who knows? I mean, I always, I think because we didn't have money when I did get money, I I, I spent it probably a hundred times in my head. Oh, you're ready. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh yeah. And probably bought candy. Who knows what I bought with it. And my mom would try so hard to teach me to save. She'd be like, why don't you put some in your piggy bank? And I put it in my piggy. And then she had these, it's interesting. Here's another early money memory that I haven't even thought of until you asked me. My mom bought these ginormous piggy banks for my brother and I, like, um, I had one brother that left that he was way older than us. So he was gone when I was growing up, but they were ginormous. They were like, two feet tall at least. And you couldn't, you could, there was no little plug at the bottom. So when she would put money in these piggy banks for us, we knew that was like long-term savings. And it almost used to help me. I'd be like, no, don't put my money in that bank because I'm never going to get that out. Because you, you have to break it? You would have to break it to get it out? Yeah, oh. yeah, I had to break it. So I can't remember what year we actually broke it. Yeah, it was just like, oh, it would just kill me. So that that's probably why I've written so many books about trying to develop a healthy relationship with money because uh, I definitely enjoyed spending it a little too much yeah so i don't know if uh, you're okay to drill down a little bit on on your mom's experience like that sounds so challenging with three kids yeah it was and like i said my older brother was kind of out of the house he's 12 years older than me so he, I, I don't okay. remember him being home too much so but nonetheless you know she still had three so uh, there was a lot a lot of stress a lot of you know, I remember her crying about money. I remember how hard it was for her. And if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we were right mm. at the bottom. Keeping the lights on. There was times I know she didn't have food that, that she gave us food. But interestingly enough, she was so abundant. Like every patient, so she waitress and every paycheck she you know, would bring home carnation flowers. Not too many, just a couple. Could explain why I hate carnation flowers. I see those things and <laughs> just screams poverty to me. I like wow. away from me. But there was always this air of abundance. And and then it was also kind of messed up though, because whenever I was around my uncles, they were up at the top of the pyramid, right? They had mm -hmm. 
very different self-esteem. They had a, a, you know, they were incredibly wealthy through land developments and owning commercial and, 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 and rental properties. And it was just night and day. So I just remember looking at them and I was like, it's so much better to have money than to not have money. So you're floating between these two worlds when you're very young. Mm-hmm. So obviously, yeah, you're seeing, like you just said, that, well, it's, I got to figure out how to get on the side of having money. Yeah, easier said than done. So sure. in, a way, yeah, like in a way, that's a great aspiration, right? So I was driven from a very early age to get money. The problem was, was I wasn't driven to save money. I just didn't want to be that poor kid. I I, I was the, the kid that didn't, it didn't really hit me till junior high that I was poor. Because I think mm. in elementary, you know, it's, it's no big deal if, if your clothes are from like back then Kreskies or whatever. But as soon as junior high hit and I went to a wealthier junior high and none of my friends from elementary were there, really hit me that we were poor and I didn't have the designer labels and I was made fun of for that and all that type of stuff. So I wanted money and I wanted it fast <laughs> and I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but it really drove me to make a lot of poor decisions in my 20s to try to live up to my wealthier friends and clients at the time. And uh, it's that poor kid syndrome, right? Like, when mm. is it going to be enough? Like, uh, so it's, uh, it's been an interesting journey for sure. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get to the 20s in, in a bit. I want to talk about some of your earlier experiences before that. Did you get a job in high school? Did you start making your own money? Yeah. So, I mean, I was always trying to make money out, like with the lemonade stands or things of that sort. Because I was a girl, it was more difficult for me in our Mm. household. My brother could go and mow lawns and he could go and do stuff. But my mom was always very nervous for me to to go and do anything. So I would help out as a, a bus person at her restaurant, things of that sort. But something that also changed my life and is probably the only reason that I've I was in the financial industry and still am as an educator was this particular episode that happened when I was, uh, I think, eight or nine years old. So when I was eight or nine years old, a big rig hit my mom and I, and it was a a bad accident and went to court and all that kind of stuff. And I think when I was at about 11 or 12, memory serves me correctly, they settled the case. And I knew when I turned 18, I was going to inherit this astronomical amount of money (laughs) for me. It was going to be $10,000. I was going to get this. uh, So I was awarded $10,000. And when I turned 18, I was going to get that and whatever the public trustee invested it in. So I remember trying to find out this public trustee's name and phone number. And I called him up and I was like, what is my money invested in? (laughs) (laughs) Really? <laughs> what are you doing with my money? And I can't remember what he told me. And so then I, I got, I went to the library and I started to try to understand what are these things called investments? What is a GIC? What is a mutual fund? And I remember asking my mom, she's like, I don't know what those things are. Why don't you go to the bank and ask them? So I went to the bank a couple blocks away and, and I made an appointment. And I was like, I want to know what these mutual funds are. And, and she's like, well, we don't give advice. And she just kind of handed me a brochure. And so I was trying to understand what these things were. They were very complex to me. And I remember calling the public trustee back up and I said, look, I have a little bit of an understanding of investing and you need to take a little more risk because I'm like, <laughs> you know, there's years till this. So anyway, he was like, I, I can't do that. Stop phoning me, lose my number. So when I turned 18, you would think that I took this money and I invested it. And I did, I invested it in an RSP, which was so the wrong move. 
because I was 18, mm. didn't know what I was doing. And then I promptly wanted to move away from home and bought a condo, which I could not afford and used all my money up. So that was also another lesson in trying to quell that poor kid syndrome by buying something I couldn't afford. But that, that I have to say that that probably really did change my life. That really had me focusing on, look, like when I'm 18, I'm getting this money and I want to make sure I get as much as possible. So you, you got early knowledge. Well, first of all, like, were you guys all right? Like, do you, do you have lingering uh, any issues from the accident? Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to ask. I mean, it was, there was a lot of health issues, like a lot of, you know, headaches and things of that sort. It, it certainly also set a path of having to look after myself health-wise, but no, we're fine. Thank you. But, you know, it, uh, it took a number of years and, and at an early age, realizing how precious your body is, right? Yeah. So you're learning about fragility and mm. also about personal finance. And some people don't have these incidents or anything happen to them until they're like 30 or later. <laughs> and by that time, maybe they're already in tons of debt. You learn, but then you tried to jump the gun a little bit by buying the condo and putting, you had mutual funds in an RSP? Yeah. Mutual funds to RSP, of course, all high risk, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to like invest it. And then I, I was like, oh, I have to move away from home. I really wanted to be independent. And I, like I had my first car waiting for me even before I was 16. It was like a beater. Independence was very, very important to me. And I remember my sister-in-law, again, because my brother was older, and her calling me, compelling me to stay home. She was like, please don't leave home at 18. You have no idea how much money you can save. And I was like, no, I have to be on my own. So it was that drive to be independent, that drive to be on my own. And then the, you know, the rental properties were just about as expensive as buying. And I think too, because I had a big brother who really believed in home ownership. He sat mm -hmm. down and kind of crunched the numbers for me. And he said, look, like you're not building any wealth. You're just, you know, throwing money away now. In hindsight, I didn't make any money on my condo, but I could see where he was coming from. And he said, you know, if you don't pay your rent for a month, like if you don't pay your rent for a couple of days, you're kicked out. If you don't pay your mortgage for like a month or two, they'll work with you. They're not going to just kick you out. So he said, you're actually safer and more secure to buy something than you are to rent something. So he convinced me to buy probably just because I had older, you know, older influences in my life. Homeownership was uh, an issue, but I'm getting a little off of off of your your question here. No, no, no. This is this is good because uh, yeah. So so you didn't you actually had it for? Did you end up selling it? Well, okay. So here's another interesting thing that I did. Uh, so uh, opportunity came up for actually the house that I grew up in. A family member was selling it, and I could buy it back for a pretty good deal because it needed a lot of love and and renos and things of that sort. So I did. I bought it. And then I couldn't sell my condo. So I got a real lesson in what do you do if you can't sell a property? Of course, making mm. the other mistake of buying something before I sold the other thing. This was a number of years later. So I rented it out, which was a nightmare. I learned that I did not want to be a landlord. It was uh, a lot of work with a full-time job. So I did finally sell it. I don't think I made any money on it. It just wasn't a great housing time like this. I'm 44. So back when I was you know, maybe in my, like maybe 23 or 24, I think I was trying to sell it. Uh, you know, the real estate market hadn't moved at all, like at all. So mm. you were just kind of paying your mortgage and building equity that way, but not building it through appreciation. Nothing like we've seen over the last 20 years, for example. Which is what, what people use as an argument for buying. They still use the same argument your brother used on you, 
right today is you're you're building equity and it's going to grow and but maybe at this point that they could be in the same situation you're in where things are flattening out right yeah well and you know what's interesting Bo, is when i was in the financial industry i worked a lot with people that had real estate because probably because my family my uncles had a lot of real estate and any financial person in the industry was always trying to convince these people to sell their real estate holdings and invest it in mutual funds or stocks or something like that. Because of course, that's how they get paid a commission, right? They're not paid a commission if they're advising you on your real estate. So I was on the board of the Edmonton Apartment Association, things of that sort. And I really kind of carved out a little niche for myself with them. And I remember doing a lot of analysis for clients at the time. So this would be back, I don't know, maybe in the early 2000s. So just about 20 years ago, and we would look at the question. So if you own a lot of commercial real estate and you bought it, let's say in the fifties or sixties, as a lot of these people had, when you pass away, as you know, capital gains are due now, unless it rolls over to a spouse and all that kind of stuff. The issue was, can your family afford to pay those capital gains If both parents passed away or are they going to have to fire sale the property, maybe at a bad time, things of that sort. Think about the Calgary market right now. And would would life insurance be a good thing to have to be available for your kids to pay the tax? So I do these analysis all the time with an accountant, of course, and a lawyer because I'm not an accountant. But the reason I'm telling you this story is I would go back 20, 30, 40 years and see how much real estate had gone up in, in my city. And it usually grew at maybe 1% on average. So at the time, real estate grows a little bit, but not much. But, you know, 20 years later, it's like, yeah, exactly. People think that you're going to get these huge returns. And we've seen that, but nothing does that forever. So yeah, it did give me that early lesson that you don't necessarily make money off of real estate, which I think was a good early lesson for me. It's not fun to be a landlord. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's costly. It can be costly. And I had a, you know, brand new condo. So you would think that there would be no problems, but there were. And it, it's a job, right? Being a landlord, yeah. people don't think of it. It, it is a, having a side hustle or a part-time job. Uh, that's, that's what it's, that's what it's like. And if you think it's just going to be, I'm going to show up once every three months and, and uh, screw in a light bulb. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that w- what you said about having that perspective early because everybody thinks you're crazy now to not invest in real estate because it's guaranteed to go up 18% a year or whatever it is. And so to have that early perspective probably has helped you not then, but today. Yeah, absolutely. And to also do the analysis of, you know, are you better, let's say like you're all in, if you buy a rental property, you're all in, in that city, you're all in, in that neighborhood, you're all in, Mm. in that building. And If you think about, you know, people like it because it's, they think it's safe. You can touch it. You can feel it, but you're right. There's, you know, the call at two o'clock in the morning because the toilet's clogged and everything you have to deal with it. But then there's also the diversification problem. You have zero diversification, uh, right? right? And, and, And that's probably borrowed money, leveraged money. It's probably everything you've got. So I, I learned to do those analysis very early on and uh, and just found it was, you know, kind of easy because it's like, yeah, that's not for me. So I know a lot of people do very well with uh, with real estate, but other than my principal residence, it's not for me. So, so we need to find out how you even got to the point of being able to do analysis 
you went to school, I'm guessing? Interesting trajectory. So because we didn't have money, I, and I, I was very bored with school. I was in a gifted program when I was in elementary, and it, that did not continue into junior high. And I just found it all very boring. I ended up doing a bunch of night school so I could graduate early. I think I graduated at 16 or 17 just to get out, not because I was oh, smart wow. later. I just yeah. needed it. And I wanted to get in the workforce. Like I loved, you know, working as a waitress. I had part time. You asked if I had a job in high school and I did. I yeah. kinds of, you know, again, because my mom was a waitress. That's what I knew what to do. So I had a lot of waitressing jobs and things of that sort. I did not see myself as um, being smart enough or having enough money to go to university because I just, I didn't care about my grades. I was just like, my mom said, you have to get a high school diploma. I did. I got it. So that was it. It wasn't to try to get into university. You just want to, you want to work. I just want to work. Yeah. Now, if someone would have taken me onto a university campus, if they would have explained student loans, if they, you know, would have said, hey, like, here's your likelihood of what your income will be if, if you can delay working for four years, get a university degree. I didn't have any, anyone to help me with that analysis. Um, I did have some cousins that went to university, but not really anybody that I talked to. So I just didn't have that, that peer group that support those mentors out there. And, and yeah, my uncles hustled. So it was like, get to work and hustle and do that. Now I did, I did like a a marketing and management diploma program. And I found that fascinating. Absolutely loved it. But then I got out as you can appreciate, let's see, this would have been at least 25 years ago in Edmonton, Alberta. It was not a bustling advertising and marketing kind of (laughs) (laughs) that had a lot of opportunities. I did have a super cool practicum, though, with a billboard company that I learned a lot from. And I just got this like uh, this part time job. This one guy was like, hey, I'll hire you to do some stuff at my financial planning firm. And I was like, oh, I really just want a job already. I don't want this contract job. But I took it and I wowed him and worked really hard. And uh, long story longer, he ended up hiring me to do. He wanted to be the first financial planning firm in the world that was ISO certified. So for your listeners, ISO certification is usually for like manufacturing and things Mm -hmm. of that sort. And he, he wanted to be so processed and so systematic in everything that was done of all his employees. He never did go through with the ISO certification, but he hired me to to process out every single thing that his firm did. And as I was doing that, he was like, hey, why don't you get in the financial industry? And I'm like, no, no, I have zero interest in being in the financial industry. <laughs> and he's like, oh, come on. And so, you know, over the, the time that I was doing that marketing for him, I was like, yeah, okay, what do I have to do? So I got my, I think I got my life insurance license and my mutual funds and license. And I was maybe like, 18, 19 with him apprenticing. And then, and forgive me if my dates are a little off, I have a hard time remembering what I ate two or three days ago, what <laughs> I was doing all these years ago. But I remember there was a correction in 1994. I think maybe I was 20 or something. Maybe I was 19. And he came to me and he said, and now remember, I already bought a condo. And he mm. came to me and he said, I can no longer afford to pay you a salary. <laughs> This correction has happened. The markets are bad, but I'd like to keep you, but you'd have to work 100% on commission. And I was like, are you for real? I'm like 19. Yeah. I've got like no experience. I'm going up against gray haired guys like you with, you know, 30, 40. I'm like, that's not going to fly. Like how am that's not going to fly. So I, I would take my lunch hour and I found out the names of every single 
branch manager of every bank in Edmonton. And every lunch hour, I would do this. And I sent them all letters. I said, look, this is my experience, blah, blah, blah. Do do you have a job for me? I was just like, I don't even know (laughs) what jobs, like, this is what you don't do. This is how you're not supposed to ask for a job. And I was just like, look, these are my skills. This is my energy, like, blah, blah, blah. This is what I can bring to the table. I just don't know what exists. And I got so many job offers. Wow. It was ridiculous. But it was luck and it was timing because this is just when, you would know this, Bo, this was just when the banks were doing this incredible transition from being godlike, you know, I give you money, I dispense money to you. To all of a sudden, baby boomers don't need money. They're paying off their mortgages. They don't need car loans. Wow, they actually have money. These baby boomers now have money to invest. And so all of the banks were now like, look, we got to get on this investing bandwagon. It sounds absurd today, but all those years ago, there weren't investment people at the bank. So their internal people did not have this customer service kind of mentality, the sales mentality was so foreign to them. It's like, we are God. You come and ask for stuff from us. We don't (laughs) service people. So I got a job at Canada Trust. They weren't ready yet. They didn't know what was going on, but I kind of sludged through that, got a lot of, learned a lot there. But the job I really wanted was with Scotiabank. And it also paid twice as much. So I remember being 21 was at Scotiabank and I had 24, 20 branches that I was their personal investment manager. And so half of my job was to get everybody in the branch licensed, like to help them get their mutual funds licensed, because almost no one in any of my branches had a mutual funds license. That's how long ago it was. Okay. Then if you had a million plus, that person would come to me and I would figure out where we went if they needed to go to Scotia trust or offshore or Scotia McLeod or what have you. And then I had that job, loved that job. It was fantastic. And then that kind of went by the, you know, kind of wrapped up. It was a job that wasn't a long-term job and all my colleagues went international or what have you, but I just bought a house. So I couldn't leave. And, uh, and then I opened my own firm in 2000 and sold it in 2005 back to the guy that I apprenticed for because I'd, I'd written my first book in 2005. And I was like, you know what? I think it's going to be a l- lot more fun. I'm going to take a, a, a leap of faith and uh, see if I can hang my hat out as an author and a, an educator and see if I can help people with money that way. So, okay. So there's a lot to dissect. Yeah, I know. That's why I'm like, okay. <laughs> So the the first thing is, I love how you just sort of were like, whatever, I'll get licenses if you want me to. Because uh, <laughs> this is like, what, you said you were 19 at that time? I think I'll, I'll, I know I was 18 because I just bought my condo. And I think I even started working for him a little bit before I was 18. Um, wow. Yeah, because I bought my condo in the year that I was 18. Yeah, it does sound like the the thoughts of a teenager. Like, you know, I just want to, I just want to do this thing. I don't know, whatever, if that's the right way to go. But what, like, what, what motivated you? Was it just the desire to to work? What motivated you to apply to all the banks? Well, first of all, I had to because I had a mortgage now. <laughs> oh, so that was motivating. Yeah, too. Okay. that was huge motivation. Oh my gosh, I remember when I first started with a financial planning firm, and I wasn't even working full time, but I was still living at home. 
And I remember the, the receptionist who did the accounting, she came to me and she said, could you please cash your checks? You have like three <laughs> checks you haven't cashed. And I'm like, oh, okay. I didn't need the money. So I'll cash them. And she was like, looking at me weird. As soon as I bought that condo ball, I was like, when's payday? When's payday? When's payday? <laughs> I am so broke. Like I had never known what it was like to be broke. And I mean, you know, you're a kid, we didn't have money growing up. But as a teenager, my mom didn't make me pay rent and any money I earned, I got to spend on myself. She was very generous that way. Like she, you know, she could have been like, no pay rent. She was great. Just let me just like have all whatever, do whatever I wanted. So any money I brought in was just like fun, clothes, you name it. You left home before you really grew up, right? Like you never really had a chance to figure, you, you went out and put yourself into the fire. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure I would have done it all the same again. <laughs> and it, yeah, and I just had no, I remember, I remember just going and buying stuff for the condo. Like I had nothing. I had no dish soap, no, no pots and pans, no wooden spoons. There's no dollar stores back then. So, or very rudimentary dollar stores. Like now you could go and go to a dollar store and you'd be just fine. But I just remember I was like, oh my God, how much is laundry soap? Like, this is ridiculous. And I, I remember also going home for, you know, for dinners at my mom's. I'd be like, mom, I really appreciate everything you did for us because now I see how expensive it is. Like, I would be eating like beefaroni on one frying pan for years. That's it. If it couldn't be cooked in a frying pan, it wasn't cooked. So is this all, all during your years of like, so you worked for Canada Trust. You said it was a contract. I should back up. What, okay. I, what I applied to all of the banks, um, it came down to two offers I wanted the most. And one was with Canada Trust and one was with Scotiabank. And like I yeah. said, Scotiabank was paying twice as much. It's a way better position. By the way, for your listeners, I never should have had any of those jobs. Both of them required a, 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 you know, a BCom that my colleagues were like in their 40s. But both of the, the guys that I interviewed with saw some hunger. They saw some passion. They were like, this is a customer service kind of position. This is a sales position. I think she's got something. She's certainly got the draw, you know? So they, they were cool to like just kind of like gloss over that. And I think too, because the guy at Scotiabank, he worked his way up as a teller and he didn't have a university degree. I think he took pity on me. And of course, of course I went to Scotiabank job. And then just a, a side thing, and we can talk about it later if you want. Of course, I didn't negotiate other either of the offers because I was ah, yes. so thrilled that anybody would pay me that amount of money. I couldn't even believe it. So it came down to the wire and I was like, what to do? Who's offered to accept? I get a call from the Scotiabank felony said, Cal, look, we just aren't ready. I have to pull the offer out. We want to hire you. We want to do it. Just not ready. And I was like, okay, I guess my answer has been made. I'll happily take the candid trust position. Again, my memory is a little fuzzy, but I think I was only there for around six months. Totally miserable. My colleagues were miserable. We all were complaining, you know, this is not what we were promised. We were sharing an office. We were sharing a laptop back when, you know, it was still dial up. <laughs> so I always, always in my networking years sent cards out to people, personal notes. Um, I'd remember their birthdays. I'd send them Christmas cards. So I sent all these Christmas cards out maybe 200 Christmas cards. I get a call literally on Christmas Eve, I remember from the Scotiabank fellow. And he says, Cal, are you happy? And I said, I'm not happy. But I didn't want to look for another job because I was like, how is this going to look on my resume, right? This isn't going to look yeah. good. 
at this financial planning firm for a year and a half. Now I'm over here, now it's six months. And back then, it was very important you were at a job for a while. Like it was not socially acceptable to just, you know, bounce all over the place. So I didn't want to, I was just, no, you're going to, you're going to just sludge through this. And, and, and I had other jobs on the side too, because it wasn't paying enough. So when my Scotiabank guy called on Christmas Eve, I was like, yeah, I'm not happy. He's like, you know what? We're ready for you. You want to come on over? And I'm like, oh yeah. Again, didn't negotiate anything. So, so this is like, as you said, this is right at the beginning of the banks getting into investments. That's probably also why, like, the they're like, well, we don't have this established yet, mm-hmm. and, they, and the Scotia Bank wasn't ready for you because they weren't. They just had to build up all this infrastructure. They did have some personal investment managers, and and you know what? It, that's a very good question. I don't know if they just weren't convinced that this was really a direction for the bank, that it was going to be profitable. It was just so new. Like, I know it's hard to even think about that, but... Well, it's so interesting now to think about it that way because, yeah, of course, it's yeah. profitable. It's it's all they do now. Right. But, but back then, banks just lent. Like, it's such a perspective shift because they just lent. Mm. That's what bankers did. Bankers didn't have these diverse portfolios. They lent money. And if you think about it, for all of history, that's what a banker was. They just lent money. The way they made money was by lending money. Right, exactly. But like mutual funds, and all this type of stuff, like people want to get into that. I mean, it was so rudimentary back then. I remember being at the financial planning firm, and you'll appreciate this and some of your astute listeners will, that there was MERs on certain mutual funds. They were like 12%. Oh, wow. <laughs> and But the fund was was returning 44% in a year. So nobody's asking about an MER. But then all of a sudden- the I next see, year, of course. Yeah, when it's down 20%, now all of a sudden it's like uh, the MER becomes a, an issue. So it was kind of a um, a wild west back then. Now it, it's always possible that some, an active fund has a high return like that, but it never would it justify that <laughs> high of a fee Yeah, in, in one year like that. And I guess that's also what you guys were looking at. You didn't have any historical uh, records for for the any any funds like this, right? Um, actually there were, there were a lot of, you'd be surprised how many funds there were. Now, when I was over at the bank, a lot of funds were new, um, which actually, as we know, past performance doesn't mean anything. No. Yeah. It actually shouldn't be a problem that it's new, but you know how it is. That's not how investor psychology works. We like to see past performance. We like to see the, the fund managers run and all that type of stuff, but we just didn't know anything, right? Like as an industry, we did look at past performance that was actually entirely what we looked at that's what clients looked at they looked at superstar there was a lot of superstar kind of mutual fund managers back then like uh kiki delaney with um what fund was she with i think she was with aim trimark there was michael lee chin uh with aic you know and um yeah it was a very very different time yeah and uh, so and i want to get to what you ended up uh, writing uh the first book about but i also want to uh, mention uh, you, you mentioned a couple of things in passing uh like the early opportunity uh that you missed uh because of gender you know i never thought about that as a, as kids of course you don't even get a chance to earn money because of gender bias um as a kid uh, I don't know if you want to mention that a bit and then talk about how that evolved uh, as you went through this business. 
Yeah, it's it's there was a few issues. I mean, number one, there was the safety issue. My mom just didn't feel comfortable with me going to a stranger's house with a shovel and saying, hey, I'll shovel your sidewalks. But my brother could do that. Also, just like girls don't do that. Right. Girls don't. Yeah. That, that yeah. mentality that hopefully we are shaking out of our heads. Uh, but... Or even like when my uncles would talk to us. I mean, I was never included in the conversation. I had to always be asking about like my brother would because it was expected that. And then it's funny because my brother had zero interested money in earning money. So I'd be like, tell me how to do it. Tell me how to do these things. But that also wasn't, there wasn't mentorship for the girl, right? It's like, uh, I was very smart and my yeah. mom told me that I was very smart, but also at the same time, she'd pat me on the head and, and encourage me to marry rich, right? Like, um, if you succeeded uh. as a girl, when I was growing up, you were to marry rich, that was going to be the definition of your success. So why mentor me or why? And, and it, no, no, no knocking at my mom. I, my mom's amazing and, and taught me so many different things, but that just, I grew up, my mom was also older when she had me, she was 38. So she came from a very traditional background and she came from 13, 14 children. She was the youngest as well. And that was a definition of success. You know, a man succeeds on his merit and a woman's success is on the man that she marries. So you're not getting any personal finance lessons and not just because maybe it wasn't talked about, but it wasn't talked about to you. Right. The only lesson I got that did not stick (laughs) was my mom (laughs) never, ever, ever had a cent on her credit card. Pay that credit card every month. And if anyone could have, it was her because there just wasn't money a lot of times. But yet somehow she just would never, ever, ever pay one cent in interest. If she used that credit card, it got paid off. Now, what my mom failed to tell me is what happens if you do put money on your credit card and you don't pay it off? <laughs> I, uh. I, I wish I had been schooled on that lesson, like to really understand how compound interest works when you're paying 18% on a credit card. So as you can appreciate, when I got my first credit card, holy moly, that was a shopping spree. It was like, let's just get furniture for my condo and let's do this and let's do that. And then all of a sudden it was like, how much are you paying? And I never went bankrupt or anything like that. But I remember getting my education on credit from a colleague of mine at Canada Trust. And he got me like this huge limit, like $10,000 limit credit card, which I never should have had. And he's like, let's pull your credit report. And I was like, what is a credit report? Oh, wow. Yeah, he kind of went through with me. And he's like, wow, you've been really irresponsible with your credit. And I'm like, (laughs) and he's like, yeah, how come you have so many late payments? And I'm like, well, I paid eventually. He's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. Like you, if you pay it one day late, that's like a 30 day hit. And I'm like, really? I didn't know that. No one ever, like, it was such an eye opener. I was like, I, I don't, I don't even know what this credit report is. How does this work? But I want more credit because that allows you to buy things, but you don't have money. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's funny because I really didn't get any kind of education. And I even took like, when I was at the financial planning firm, I went through a lot of CFP courses. Now I'm sure it's different now. I'm sure it's very different now. I don't know the CFP curriculum. It, and I actually have to tell you, I do talk to even like, let's say somebody at the head of marketing in a bank, they probably don't know how to check their credit. It just, we just don't get these lessons. And it's something that's so incredibly important. We like, I have a degree in, in uh, commerce. You know, I didn't learn anything about personal finance. They don't know why. Right? Why shouldn't, why isn't that in the first year stuff? Like here's a personal, let's just make sure, like maybe you all know what to do, but let's just have a course 
yeah. to make sure because now we're gonna we're trusting you guys to give advice or to manage uh, money in a corporation or for people or for you uh, you know investments uh, for people uh, coming in or making plans for them. It sounds like your personal finances were a mess for a lot of the first part of you being working in finance. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, hundred percent. And bit and bit by bit, did you, did you sort of, like you had this conversation about credit score and your. You're just picking up stuff as you go. How did you how did you actually start to to learn for yourself? Yeah, well, I learned through the school of hard knocks, as they say. So I did learn yeah. my credit from a colleague. And then when I got my job at Scotia, I had very wealthy clients, like very wealthy clients that would come and see me. But what also was interesting, Bo, and this is this is a segue later if you want to why I wrote my first book, was I had what I call seemingly wealthy people. <laughs> so Every branch was supposed to send me their wealthy people. What would be really curious would be, and of course, if you bank with that bank, I would see your whole file. I would know your net worth statement, right? Because you had your mortgage with the bank and all that type of stuff. So there would be maybe this local celebrity or local businessman or woman, and they'd be like, hey, you should go and see our investment manager. So I would have an appointment with these people. I'd look at their file and I'm like, this person's $2 million in debt. They don't have any money. Why are you referring them to me? But everybody thought they had money, right? Everyone wow. had money. So that was a huge eye opener for me as a young person to be like, I know who you are. Everyone knows who you are, but I have to keep the secret that you really are broke. Like, well, it helps you. It helps you not have uh, the Beyonce factor, as as Shannon Lee Simmons would say, <laughs> uh, right? Because if you can see, you can see Beyonce's financial statement, so you know if the if the yacht has been borrowed or or not. You know what the mortgages are like if everything's leveraged, right? And then you would also see the person that would come in that looked like they didn't have a cent in the world, and they had you know five million dollars in GICs, and they were grinding you for a better rate, but. Yeah. <laughs> but you would think that that did it for me. It didn't. <laughs> it didn't. Um, and I think, so this is why I, I, I wrote so much about the psychology of money in my first two books, how you feel about it. I, I'm, it's still an ongoing thing for me, just as health is. Like, I don't think you ever fix your health. I don't think you ever fix your finances. But where I was as young as I was and with my colleagues, there was this real competition of what pen did you write with? What shoes did you wear? How did you look? Wow. Because if you're in the financial industry or back then, you better look like you have made it. Well, I didn't make it. I was 21 years old. And all of my friends, probably because my brothers were older and my uncles were older and I admired them. I chose boyfriends that were older and I was dating a doctor at the time and he had a really beautiful Mercedes. And he was like, you know, you should have a Mercedes. And I was like, I, I can't afford a Mercedes. He's like, sure you can. Takes me over to the Mercedes dealership. This is what I'm telling you about. Like someone would have taken me to a college campus. Maybe I would have gone there. So he's like, let's just go. Let's go talk to my guy over the Mercedes dealership. So we go over there and, and they're like, yeah, you know, if you can come up with this down payment, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and, and he sat me bow in the car. He's like, sit in the car, look at that Mercedes emblem. Doesn't that feel great? And I'm like, it does. Wow. Long story longer. I'm 21. Maybe I was 22, maybe 23. Still way too young, way too young. Something like that. Forgive me if I'm a little off. So maybe 23. I, I remember I have a house. I have a condo. I have huge expenses. He's like, you got to get into a Mercedes. So 
take every cent I've got, scrap a, a down payment enough that I can actually afford these lease payments, get get off the, the parking lot, brand new Mercedes. And I, I, I couldn't believe how people treated me differently. I couldn't believe how my branches treated me differently, how my clients treated me differently. And that was a very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, it was dangerous at an early age lesson. Uh, it was a great lesson in hindsight for later in life, but it just kind of spurred a number of years of living up to my clients. And I have to tell you, all my colleagues were doing the same thing. They were like, we got to look the part. Um, we got to look as wealthy as our clients do. Well, we couldn't, we couldn't sustain that. Uh, so yeah, I, I did a lot of repenting financially in my thirties. It's a, it's a fascinating contrast. You are going into debt in order to make them think that you're good enough to manage yeah. their money. Yeah. What, but, but like in, in the process, like, well, you didn't go bankrupt, but you're bankrupting yourself almost. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was really rough. Yeah. And it was almost like an early branding thing. And I, I don't know if I had heard the story at the time or not, or if I heard it later in my career that Michael Lee Chin, uh, as, as you probably know, is one of Canada's billionaires. He was, like the rock star of mutual funds before the tech, uh, uh, you know, time, uh, kind of like the Warren Buffett of Canada. And it was rumored that he used money that he was supposed to use for college. And he took all of what he had and he rented a Rolls Royce for one day to go around and do his sales calls <laughs> because if wow. he pulled up in a Rolls Royce, people would think that, you know, he had made it. He was a good person to to believe in. I have to have to confirm that because I've actually interviewed him for a few things. <laughs> so I do have to confirm if that actually is in fact true or not. But I probably had that in the back of my head that you got to look the part to get the part. But boy, did I, I paid a lot of years for that. Now, on, on a positive thing, I did keep my car for 13 years. I ended up buying a lease and kept that thing for a long time. It was a very interesting time when I was just trying to keep up appearances and using credit to do it. So, so you're learning uh, so much about personal finance along the way, and you're learning, uh, of course, you're getting experience in the finance industry. And then uh, you're, you're like, I'm going to write a book. Right. I met my husband, who then was obviously not my husband. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he had a background in uh, psychotherapy. And then he uh, decided that he wanted to do something totally different, went to the Vancouver Film School, and he was doing videos and multimedia and websites and all this kind of stuff and, and a lot of marketing. He was consulting for a lot of clients. <clears throat> and he said to me, you know, you have this firm, I've Keen Financial that I open. He said, you have this firm, you have these clients that are messed up with money. Some have a lot, some are in debt. He said, you owe it to teach them about what you're learning. Like he introduced me to a lot of psychology of money kind of uh, courses and books and things of that sort. And I was studying all the principles. He's like, you owe it to your clients to teach this to them. And I'm like, well, I don't mm. have time. Like, I don't have time. Like as a business, I can only take on so many clients. I already was full really fast. I did some good things marketing and I was full. I couldn't even take on any more clients hardly. And, you know, you've got to do your investment reviews. I didn't have time. And and so, um, but I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get some girls, some, some, you know, some of my female clients, some of my friends, and I'm going to do like a little course and I'm going to teach them about the psychology of money and, and see what they think. And it was really fun. It forced me to put content together. We'd have wine at my office every, I don't know, Wednesday for six weeks. 
and just talk about like, hey, do you have any issues? What like, the, you know, like, what are your issues? What are your issues as a woman? All this kind of stuff is fascinating. And then also he said, you need to write a book because you don't have a university degree. And I think that's yeah. holding the perception, like how you feel about yourself, but other also how people look at you. And it would be good for your career to write a book. I'm like, I don't know anything about writing a book. I don't want to write a book. I'm not a writer. No interest. Don't know anything about it. No, no thanks. So he counted me forever. Once I finished the course, he just looked at me and he said, you know what? That's kind of your book. And mm. I was like, oh, yeah, that actually could be my book. And so um, I went to a few courses on, you know, uh, how to publish a book and all this type of stuff. I didn't even understand self-publishing versus publishing. I, I didn't even know what that meant. And it didn't matter because I was like, you know, I tested this material. I, I, I worked it out and I think this would help my clients. I'm going to come out with this book for them because I don't have time when I'm meeting with them to really talk to them about these issues that I think could really help them. So I'll come out with this book to help them. So that was, that was the impetus for coming out with the book. And if, if it does anything great, if I sell any books, whatever. And because my husband had this background in P, like, you know, he had, he helped some clients with PR with writing press releases and, and getting media coverage and things of that sort. We did a bunch of stuff. Well, um, by accident, I got on some bestsellers list because I did a bunch of media and, and sold a lot of books in a short nice. period of time. And then I got some offers from publishers and I was like, Hmm, maybe I could do this. And back then I couldn't find anyone to align with because it was all older guys in the industry that were looking for young people to join them. So mm. nobody like you couldn't be on the road doing stuff. You had to be in your office looking after your clients. So I was like, well, maybe I can, you know, there's a great quote by Wayne Dyer who says, if you are what you do, what are you when you don't? And I was like, maybe I could sell my company and just not do it anymore. So that's yeah. it. Yeah. So you, so you made the choice. You're just, let's just have a chat about money. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, and which is, you know, what, that's what I, I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do with this podcast. That's, I think that's what a lot of people are, are, are doing is, you know, bloggers and podcasters and, you know, uh, on social media and stuff is let's just talk about it right but yeah what year what year was this uh when i sold my company when the first book came out yeah yeah around the time when you just made sort started make this decision to pivot a little bit it was 2005 that's when my first book came out so i had my firm for five years and yeah uh, yeah mm -hmm. yeah so that's like this is you know way before any of the stuff that we're we're, we're talking about now existed the infrastructure i don't even know how many podcasts there might have been at the time i know there were podcasts uh not a lot ago, I, I don't but not a lot yeah. and blogs i knew that another work is uh um you know some of the some of the early people at fincon i think had blogs are you then now going to you start speaking and uh like touring on the book yeah, everything was very accidental. So okay, yeah. yeah. So so you know, someone would see you on TV and they would be like, "Hey, would you like to come and speak? We'll pay you three hundred dollars and buy you lunch." And I'm like, "What? That's <laughs> you know?" I'm like, "Wow, that's amazing!" And, and awesome. Uh, yeah, and it just and and like I said, I I lucked out, got on some some bestsellers list because if you sell so many in a certain short period of time, get on a bestsellers list, and I didn't realize that publisher, I didn't, again, even know what a publisher was. Publishers watch those things. And then I had some publishers reaching out to me saying, do you want to write another book? So then that's where book number two came out. 
then that did all right. And, and I, so I didn't have money to tour. Like, I mean, I could have spent my own money, but I didn't even know to tour. So the first book, I didn't do any of that, but I right away got the offer for the second book. And then I did do a little tour. Toronto was very, very good to me. I remember fighting with my publisher. He's like, I'll pay for you to go to Calgary and Vancouver and stuff, but I'm not going to pay for you to go to Toronto because you'll just get swallowed up. They're not going to listen to anybody from the West. <laughs> and I'm like, no, 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 you have to send me to Toronto. You have to. Like, I had only been to Toronto. Anyway, long story longer, um, convinced him. And uh, James Dye, remember, did an interview with me from the Toronto Star. And he put that on the front cover of the business section. Awesome. And it just, that, and Toronto has always been so good to me. Actually, Vancouver is really hard to get media because they don't want to talk about money generally, unless it's how they, <laughs> they want to talk about health and lifestyle and stuff. So yeah, always go with your gut because your gut's usually right. So, so what, was the, what was the name of the first book? The first book was The Prosperity Factor for Women. I'm seeing a bunch of books uh, now on, on your website. Uh, are they all still available for purchase? Yeah. So the first book was self-published. So we still have a, a limited stock of that. Almost everything should still be on Amazon. So I've written 10 books. Nine have been published. Uh, two of the books uh, were published by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada as part of their financial literacy efforts. They've re-released one of those books that actually hit the Toronto um, uh, Toronto Star's bestseller list a couple of weeks ago and a couple other bestseller lists. It's it's actually in stores right now. It's in Indigo and Chapters and all that. And my newest book is coming out with Simon & Schuster in December, which I'm super, super excited about. It's called Talk Money to Me. I don't want to let you go before we talk about women and money. Because mm -hmm. You've written you know, several books. <laughs> that 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 uh, talk about that can you uh, give us a summary of where you started and to where we are today and and how you feel about how it's all uh, progressing like uh, uh, women uh financial i guess confidence financial empowerment mm -hmm. right? is that that the better word to use empowerment yeah or or financial well-being wellness i think everyone's a bit uh, there's you know we're kind of trying to figure out the right words as an industry it's a it's an ongoing process um, there's kind of two camps. It's a good question, Bo. There's two camps of women. There's the one camp that are super gung-ho. They're doing amazing. If you talk to Barbara Stewart, if you ever have her on your show, she's amazing. She's written some great uh, white papers. I think she was an investment banker or whatever. I know she's a chartered financial analyst. And she would say women are really stepping up to the table. They are not as risk adverse, if at all. They know what they're doing. They're doing amazing. Okay, that's great. Yes, there are those women. But there's another camp of women that aren't. They are very risk adverse. They're not paying attention to finances. Uh, FP Canada, I'm the consumer advocate for FP Canada. These are the folks that uh, certify, certify financial planners in Canada. And we did a survey for uh, International Women's Day last year. And our survey revealed that 40% of women uh, said that they have zero knowledge about finance and investments. That's a big number as far as I'm concerned. And that is pretty representative of a lot of the women that I talked to. I think too many women are still deferring to others when it comes to their finances. They're just not paying attention for a number of reasons. And you know what? We're just newer in our finances. Like 
I don't even think in the 50s you were even, like, I think you still had to ask, maybe it's not 50s, maybe it was the 1930s, you had to, like, get your spouse's permission to own property. There's still a lot of women all over the world can't own property. If it were just a few years earlier, I would not have been able to be in the financial industry. I wouldn't be where I am today. It just wouldn't be possible in the 1950s or 60s. It's crazy to me that women couldn't say vote like a hundred oh. years ago or so. And and then, yeah, exactly what you just said. Like, uh, I got to ask your husband's permission to do this or that. This, uh, this is it's crazy to me because this and and the fact that any of this patriarchy is still lingering. It just seems also backwards and wrong uh, today. But like, yeah, you're right. No, no runway, right? <laughs> like gender and race. Like people are like, oh, you know, we're equal now. Well. I mean, not quite. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the, right? There's a, we had this, uh, you know, the, the white males had this really long runway yeah. that no one else has, right? Yeah. So you've, you, you've wanted to focus on this in, in most of your uh, publications, it seems. Well, especially coming again from having a single mom and, and knowing that moms, yeah. you know, moms have a, a difficult time. Like women are living longer. Women, if you're going to have a family, it's a lot of the burden is going to be on them to leave the, the workforce, to try to get back into the workforce. When parents are aging, regardless if it's yours or your spouse's, they're the ones that are usually taking time off work. They're the caregivers. So there's lots, you know, and we're earning less for the same job on average. There's some stuff we're not doing. There's a great book that I love called Women Don't Ask. I was talking to you about negotiating. The authors of that book estimate that by a woman not negotiating her starting salary and subsequent salaries that she leaves a million dollars on the table during her working lifetime. So yeah, which you, which you mentioned earlier when you were talking about not negotiating your salary early. Yeah. So there's a lot stacked against women and a lot that were, I think as a gender need to step up a little bit more for those that haven't. Again, we're newer in our money conversations than men are. Men talk about money more, I think still than women do. So yeah, we're, we're evolving, like we're getting there, but we, we certainly have, have a long way to go. Each one of these things that you're saying could have a podcast episode right. itself. <laughs> and and I, I really would like to have you back in the future, uh, you know, because now that we've told your story and people know where you're from, you know, we can, we can talk about uh, the things, uh, more about the things that you're doing now and more about these issues that are really important to talk about. But I'm really glad that we uh, got you on today to... So, so that we could learn your personal finance story. That'd be great. And, and thank you, Bo, because you are, are telling so many people's stories. There can't be enough stories because every single one is going to relate to people differently, like cookbooks or other styles or whatever. So congrats to you for all of the hard work. I know these podcasts take a lot of work, but you're doing a, a great job in helping what is my mission is for Canadians to feel good about money. So thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Bo. And that was episode 92 with Kelly Keene. If you like the podcast and want to see me get to episode 100 and beyond, episode 100 is coming up in September. It's actually not that far away. Please support the podcast by going to my Patreon site and becoming a patron. It's only a few bucks a week, but if enough people do it, it starts to add up. So head over to patreon.com slash bowhumphreys if you're interested. I am now offering free 15-minute personal finance consultations online. What are we going to talk about for 15 minutes? We're going to talk about your finances. We don't have to get into details, but I want to know how you think things are going financially and whether you're feeling good about your financial future. We can't make a lot of progress in 15 minutes, but the idea is that in that time, if you feel like talking to me is helping you feel better about your finances, then you might want to book some personal finance coaching time with me. 
After the free 15 minutes, I charge $50 an hour, plus HST if you're Canadian. I want to help you save money now and help you achieve your financial goals if you have them. And if you don't, I want to help you figure out what they are. It's going to be worth way more than 50 bucks. So just head over to bowhumphreys.com and click on the banner to book a 15-minute chat with me for free. That's it for this episode. I'll be back next week with independent financial advisor at you and yours financial, Daryl Brown.